Lord, as we enter this time of um, just really looking at your word and considering it slowly and corporately, I pray that um, it would be profitable and helpful to our souls. God, that these events that took place long ago in a, in a far-off city um, would actually find application and root in our own hearts that we might just see today about your, your power. As our songs today focus so much upon the name of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, there's just something about that name. Jesus, the name that believers love to hear in their ears. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. So I pray that this morning you'd you'd exalt the name of Jesus Christ through my, my preaching and through our collective hearing. Apply it deep to our souls. Comfort us, encourage us, convict us, strengthen us, establish us in all these things. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just over the course of of time and months and weeks and years as they go by, just to, with the, um, the the media, there's just this cycle of things that that we see and we hear about. I mean, every election season drives us to think about politics, and and when the sins of the rich and famous come out, it it causes us to see our heroes in new lights. And with the the economy, the stock prices rise or fall, or interest rates rise or fall, it causes us to think about our our future security. Or when technology discoveries are are, are made known, it gives us a a hope for the future as we we think about engaging in those technologies at some point. Sporting championships, right? Whether it's a Super Bowl or NCAA championship or golf, it just uh, allows us to awe at the greatness, the ability of, of athletes. And pandemics that are worldwide cause us to think about the fragility of our own hearts and our mortality. And, and global conflicts cause us to think just about how tenuous this world really is and safety and security. And the, these stories like ebb and flow over the weeks and months, and there's lots of other topics, but they're just like these reoccurring things, themes that often hit the world news. And, and in recent months, right, we have really seen one of the dominant stories of the war in Ukraine. In fact, it's more than a hundred days ago that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, February 24th, 2022. And uh, one site said, a website, the invasion caused Europe's fastest growing refugee crisis since World War II, with more than 7.4 million Ukrainians fleeing the country and a third of the population displaced. One in three Ukrainians are, are not in their house where they were a hundred days ago. So it just dominates us. And this war, I think, one of the, the benefits to us in some regards has given us reason to reflect about the direction of the world. It's the, the war of our generation. Previous generation, there was, was World War II. And um, like, I, I love D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great English preacher in the 1940s and 50s, was really strong um, in, in England. And he started his ministry, and I think within the month or within three months, uh, Germany began to bomb England. And he talked a lot, as I've read his sermons over the years, talked a lot about how it really exposed the sinfulness of people, the sinfulness of man, where, where the, the Enlightenment, French Enlightenment coming about 1700s, 1800s, right? They really thought, oh, we're doing really well, we're doing well. And then World War came, World War I came and smashed people. Oh, maybe we're not doing so well. But then there was a resurgence, and then World War II just really smash that all. And I think this war is a war of our generation to to think about 
just our world and the wickedness and how broken our world is. As I had an opportunity to witness to a man a couple months ago when this was coming out, and he was shocked that such a thing could happen in our world today. And think about it. In the 21st century, he said that this could happen. Well, maybe we haven't advanced as far as we think we have, and I don't think we ever will. It's just the, the sinfulness of man, for sure. It's happening. It's a demonstration of all the broken world that we live in. Well, this morning as we go to God's Word, we're going to see a city forced to think about the realities, not of physical warfare, military warfare, but of spiritual warfare. We're going to see the kingdom of God come and invade the kingdom of this world, particularly as we think about the city of Ephesus. This battle is described in our text this morning, Acts chapter 19, 11 through 20 is... My text this morning, the, the title of my sermon this morning is Spiritual Warfare in Ephesus because that's what we see. When Paul entered into that city, we saw, we see spiritual warfare breaking out. The, the city of Ephesus was a typical pagan city in the ancient world filled with idols and false worship and particularly the, uh, the city of Ephesus was uh, particularly influenced by the cult of Artemis, which we'll, we'll see that next time as we see uh, in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21 and following, we're just going to see how strongly they held on to their idolatry. Uh, but this morning, we're going to see how strongly they held on to their magic, their magical practices. Now, when I say magic, I'm not talking about pen and teller, sleight of hand. I'm talking about sorcery. I'm talking about witchcraft. I, I, I'm talking about Ouija boards. I, I'm talking about seances and trying just to connect with the spiritual world in some way so as to manipulate and control the the power of evil spirits and demons through magic arts and incantations. That's what was taking place in the city of Ephesus. And so when Paul comes into this city, he, he encounters these spiritual forces and he battles them head on. And those in Ephesus saw the, the fight took place. And years later, then, Paul wrote about this battle that took place in Ephesus. When he wrote the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, he speaks about the warfare that took place then and that takes place in our lives today. And so before I read Acts 19, I want to read from Ephesians 6, where Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he said, Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And basically he's saying this, you've got to be strong, arm yourself with the armor of God, because that's where our true battle is. It's in the spiritual realm. And then he goes on in this great picture of the armor of God. He says in Ephesians six thirteen, Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. He says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. You want to fight spiritual warfare? Put on this belt, this belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. You want to fight the spiritual warfare? You fight it, you fight it with righteousness, less a breastplate would. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel is what on our feet, it's on our feet to go and to preach and to battle with the gospel. He says, um, in all circumstances, and I, I love this, Ephesians 6, 16, it's the conclusion of everything. Here's how you need to fight the spiritual battles. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It's faith, it's belief, 
It's trust in the Lord where spiritual warfare really takes place. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. That's what the armor of God is. That's how we fight. You know, and what's remarkable here about Paul's fighting the spiritual warfare fight is that he's calling us to take up truth and righteousness and the gospel and faith and salvation and the word of God and prayer. We don't fight spiritual warfare. So many think today with, with special techniques and special words of rebuke to the devil. We don't need some special magical spells and incantations of our own to battle the devil. We just need truth. The truth of the Word of God. We just need righteousness. Do you realize a righteous life protects you from evil? Psalm 1. Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the city of scoffers. Blessed is the man right, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. That's the one that's going to be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. But it's the wicked who aren't so, who are like chaff that the wind drives away. It's righteousness. You fight a spiritual warfare, you fight with righteousness, not incantations or rebukes of the devil. We fight righteousness with a gospel of peace that we trust and proclaim. Spiritual battle takes place when you proclaim the truth of Jesus, died on the cross for our sins, trust in him. Satan, evil spirits hate that. We need to fight with faith. Fight the good fight of faith is what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 or 12. I forget which one. We need the assurance that salvation brings. We need the scriptures. And we need prayer. That's what Paul says. After having battled spiritual warfare, he says in the end, this, these are the sorts of things that you need. Just preach the gospel. Trust the gospel. Follow Christ. Walk in His ways. And what's interesting here in Acts chapter 19, as I'm going to read the text, I want you to notice what's included here about how much effort Paul put into his own spiritual warfare. It's almost like, you know, the, the, the story of the Reformation. I, I love the story how Martin Luther just reflects upon the Word of God. He says, while I and Melanchthon were, I forget where he was, well, we were drinking beer in our castle, the Word of God was out fighting for us. In other words, that, that's what's happening here is that Paul is sort of just doing his ministry, but, but ministry is happening and spiritual warfare is happening. It's the thrust of our text. So let's read our text. Acts chapter 19, 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm sorry. I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was an evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. 
And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now before we actually dig into this text, again I want to remind you of the context. We've been working our way through Acts, just kind of paragraph by paragraph, week by week. We've seen Paul take one missionary journey, second missionary journey, and right now he's on his third missionary journey, begun in Antioch of Syria. And in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, it speaks about him going out. It says he went from one place to the next to the region of Galatian and Phrygia until he arrived at Ephesus, Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. And that's where he is. He's at Ephesus, this most important city of Asia Minor, the capital city, in fact, the, the, the core city to this whole place. And once in Ephesus, Paul established a church there, spent time evangelizing the lost and discipling those who believed. And all in all, Paul was there for, for three years. His time was certainly impactful. And last week, we looked at verses 8 through 10, which gave us a summary of how he established a church, how all churches are established with three months of evangelism and then two years of discipleship. And that, that kind of gave us a broad perspective. And now what we're going to get, we're going to get several glimpses of what took place in Ephesus. We're going to see a glimpse this week in verses 11 through 20. We're going to see a glimpse next time with this riot, verse 21 through the end of the chapter, when uh, the spiritual warfare just continues to take place. When the gospel's made clear, it means you're going to lose your idols and the people are going to lose their business, cut them to the heart of their money bags or their uh, treasure bags, and a riot ensued before then Paul eventually left town. But here we see spiritual warfare taking place in the church at Ephesus, the spiritual battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And by way of outline here this morning, what, what I want to do is just make some observations about what happened in Ephesus during those days and then seek to apply it as is appropriate. So uh, the first point I see here, verse 11 and 12, is what we see happening in Ephesus. We see extraordinary miracles. Look there again in verse 11. It says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now these were miracles, but beyond miracles, these were extraordinary miracles. The Amplified Version describes these miracles by adding right, words to the text to try to fill out the, the meaning here, the Greek word. It says that these miracles were extraordinary and unusual. So extraordinary and unusual. Eugene Peterson, his translation, really an interpretation of the message, describes these miracles as, quote, quite out of the ordinary. Right? And that's the idea, is, is that there are miracles that God does, <clears throat> which God enters into our existence and does some things that just can't be explained. Whether that's Jesus walking on the water or feeding 5,000 people or Jesus raising from the dead, right? It's a miracle. We, we can't understand it. In fact, sometimes, there are many, many times where people think that they help the cause of Christ by trying to explain how these miracles happened. I tried to explain how Jesus walked on the water, like maybe he was really shallow or maybe there was a log floating there. But to do that denies the very fact this is a miracle. You're not supposed to understand how it is that Jesus walked on the water. Or people try to explain the resurrection of Jesus by saying, well, he wasn't really dead. He, he swooned like he just looked dead. He was mostly dead, right? But he wasn't all dead. And um, they try to explain that. But when you explain that, 
You ruin the miracle. A miracle by its definition is something which, which betrays all explanation. And so that's what God does. And, and also I was just even thinking about that this morning as we had our, our prayer time this morning, which you're invited to at 9 o'clock downstairs in case you forgot. Just come. We had about a dozen of us this Sunday. Just come. This is spiritual warfare in all circumstances. Right? We need to pray. Anyway, but there was a miracle that, thinking about miracles, thinking about the gospel also. You don't need to explain the gospel. You don't need to justify the gospel. You don't need to make the gospel palatable. It's supernatural. It's a miracle that God forgives us through faith in His Son. So you don't need to explain that. You don't need to like try to give some logical explanation for it. Just speak it forth like you would say miracles. So anyway, there are miracles. But miracles weren't happening in Acts chapter 19. We were seeing extraordinary miracles. That puts miracles on a, like a totally different category. Um, it's not just a miracle, it's a miracle, if you will. It's a capital M miracle. You, you know, in mathematics, there's this, um, this understanding that infinite is infinite, but there is countable infinites. Like, you, you can, like, if you had enough time, you could count, you could keep counting, kind of get to the end. But then there are infinite infinites, in which you can't even count how many infinites and how big things are, because there's no, like, there's, there's order to it, but you can't even start to get there. Like, like, that's like, an infinite would be counting all the numbers, right? From one all the way up. Like, that's countable. But an infinite infinite would be like to try to sort and count and recognize all the rational numbers. Like, all of a sudden that gets more difficult. It's like hard. But anyway, that's another concept. But it's just beyond explanation. Miracles happening in the city. Right? But they, they, they weren't happening. And I think the idea here is that the miracles happening in the city were... We're not happening in other cities that Paul had experienced. So these miracles didn't take place in Philippi or Thessalonica or Corinth or Athens or Berea. These were like so far above and beyond what normally was happening. And my simple observation is this, right? If, um, if these miracles took place only in this city, they weren't even normative back then. I mean, the battle with the book of Acts is this. Okay, the miracles were happening. Is that normative today? And people say, yeah, everything happened in the book of Acts we ought to do today. But these were extraordinary miracles happening only here in Ephesus. They weren't even supposed to be done then. And so it just behooves the fact that for us today, we ought not to seek these similar miracles because it just took place in Ephesus. These miracles were happening, it says, verse 11 says, by the hands of Paul. Right? God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And how that exactly happened, we don't know. But... Verse 12, we see how extraordinary they were. So think about this. This will blow your mind if you start thinking about this. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. The healing touch of Paul was so powerful that he didn't even have to touch people to see the sick healed. Merely the garments that he wore which had been touched by secretions from his body, were sufficient and enough to go through the hand of Paul, even to touch them. And even more specifically here, we see handkerchiefs and aprons. These are Paul's working clothes. So if you remember, Paul was a, a tent maker, right? He worked with leather, and among other things, right, he, he made tents. And so think, picture him, right? He goes into a shop, 
right? He, he goes in his shop and he puts on his apron so as to pr- protect his toga or something, right? This is his, his nice clothes and then his work clothes. He puts that on and, right, he puts his handkerchief, his bandana on is really what we're talking about, his handkerchief. Or maybe he's got some in his pocket. And so as he's slaving away there, he's sweating on his, his bandana and he's, he's wiping that off and he's putting his tar, in his, in his pocket and, and his, his, his arms rub against his, his apron, whatever, and it's right there. And then he goes home at night, and some of his friends sneak into his workshop, and they grab some of these things, and they take it out. And, and somehow these body fluids absorbed by his clothes were sufficient to heal the sick people and to cast out evil spirits that had tormented people. Is that extraordinary? It's like, amazing. You gotta be like, whoa, like, how does that happen? I thought, like, Jesus would touch people often. Like, he touched the leper. And the leprosy went out of him. He touched the blind eyes, the man's eyes, and went out of him. He offered a hand and he, he lifted from the dead. He said, there's always, always this touch. This wasn't even a touch. And the closest we can come to in the life of Jesus is when people tried to come up and touch just the fringe of his garments. And they're healed. And maybe you remember the story of the woman who had a bleeding problem for 12 years. She had a bleeding problem. And she reasoned in her, in her heart, right? If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And she did and she was. Made well. Bleeding stopped. That's all we see. And maybe some of this is uh, Acts chapter 5 verse 15 speaks about the shadow of Peter falling on people and being healed. It's amazing stuff. When it comes to Paul, he wasn't even wearing these garments. Right? And I wouldn't be surprised if his, if his workers who were stealing these garments had taken them away, if Paul, whether he knew or not, were reasoning the same thing. If they only touch his garments, they'll be made well. And they did and they were. They touched his garments, his sweat rags, and they were being healed. Now, did you see why I call this extraordinary miracles? So far beyond the miracles that God was doing in the times of the New Testament. And, and I think the point here is that they're, they're so far beyond. We don't even try to imitate these sorts of things. Yet, people do. Um, there are Pentecostal preachers quite willing to sell you handkerchiefs that will help heal you. One place I found on the internet was, was selling a little kit. Right? Oint, anointing oil, anointing water, and anointing handkerchief. Um, my guess is the anointing oil was bought from Walmart and poured into these things, and the anointing water was probably pulled, poured from the tap, and the handkerchief, whatever, is kind of this nice thing that was ordered. But the website comes through. It's called Breakthrough Package, all three of these together. If you need financial breakthrough, spray the water, put some of the oil on the handkerchief, and put the handkerchief on or inside your wallet. Pray and declare that the four winds of heaven must come and locate you. There's one thing. Or if you need healing, anoint your head with the oil, spray some of the water three times in your mouth, like Listerine or something, right? And put the handkerchief on your body or carry it with you. Make declarations that by a stripes you're healed. Or if you're experiencing demonic dreams or visitations at night, spray your pillow with water and anoint your head with the oil and put the handkerchief in your pillow. Declare that no demons can infiltrate your dreams or sleep in Jesus' name. If you need deliverance or being tormented by demons, anoint your head with oil and spray your head with the water. Put the handkerchief over your head as you pray spiritual warfare for your deliverance. All for $25. All yours. 
That's the sort of magic that those in Ephesus were seeking to do, right? Healing through some sort of magic formula, right? Some difficulty in your life? Use this magic formula. Use these magic uh, handkerchiefs and, and you'll have these miracles. That's not how this is working. This was God doing extraordinary miracles. There's not the, the power in the, in the things themselves. It says that God was doing the miracles by the hands of Paul. And, and these, these handkerchiefs are all over the place. Um, one website was selling miracle handkerchiefs. And, and this is like not even Christian. Like they pull up, this is more like what those in Ephesus were doing. They weren't, but would do if they could. Like we're going to see here a bit later that uh, what time, so a lot of times what these spiritual workers do is they steal the magic tricks. Right? They see someone else do it, they figure out how to do it, so they repeat their act. So, oh, these handkerchiefs, let's do that. Well, that's the, what the world has done today. You can go, I think it's miraclehandkerchief.com or something like that. You can, uh, it says this, the power of the handkerchiefs is from ancient Egyptian spells. The handkerchiefs are from Egypt and specially, spiritually blessed from the land of Obia, Jamaica, and the West Indies. Each comes with a special prayer and a spirit to activate the miracle of your heart's desire. All handkerchiefs cleanse your aura and remove the imperfections and dark clouds that surround you, allowing your desires to flow through into life. These handkerchiefs turn around a seemingly impossible situation. These handkerchiefs, uh, Mary, they're more powerful. They're $49 each. But if you buy three of them, so that's $49.99, so three of them puts you $149.97, you get a fourth one free. And if you buy four of them, $199.96, cents, then you get an extra one free. You get five of these handkerchiefs free. Now, this website, these handkerchiefs, they're all specific. So like if you're seeking money, then you need that one. And if you're seeking like to restore your love life or your marriage, then you need this one. And if you merely just seeking um, protection or, or blessing, you need this one. Or legal difficulties, you need this one. Or if you like going gambling, go ahead and take this, take this handkerchief and it promises you good luck. Oh, that's absurd, right? These are extraordinary miracles not to be repeated, and yet churches do that a lot. Just even looked on a website, how to pray with a prayer cloth. And the whole idea is that these are extraordinary, and it was once, it was when Paul was doing it. It's not for us to be repeated. Now, if you want to pray with your pillow or with your, your old blanket, you know, that you had like Linus or something, like, go ahead, that's totally fine. Um, just don't try to bring Acts chapter 19 into it. And I trust you can see how far people just strayed from the original context of these extraordinary miracles, these amazing power of God. But I ask you, why was Paul doing these extraordinary miracles here in Ephesus? Like, why not in Philippi or, or why not in Athens? Most commentators seem to suggest that perhaps it was because the occult practices in Ephesus were so much bigger and larger than at other places. Now we think about Athens, that city full of idols, a lot of idolatry happened, but it wasn't quite the, the magic or the occult, the exorcist that was going at this place. And so the Lord gave these great powers to Paul to demonstrate the superiority of the power of God over the power of the occult. And, and we see that power coming in verses 13 through 17, which I simply call this, they're extolling the name of Jesus where a lot of the songs came, just the, the power of the name of Jesus. We, we just look here. Acts chapter 19, verse 13. Then, observing these things, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. 
seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It's right there at the end of verse 17. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Because the power of the name of Jesus was far powerful than all of these evil spirits. And that's the entire issue here. It's the power of the name of Jesus. I mean, look again at verse 13, right? Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they, they, they took there, they saw the name of Jesus, and they just used this name like a magic incantation. And these Jewish exorcists are identified further in verse 14. They're, they're, the seven of them, they were all brothers because they were all sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva was doing these things. So apparently Luke who wrote this wants us to know a little bit about these people. We know that they're itinerant. That is that they, they traveled around. They weren't from Ephesus. They came into Ephesus on their traveling ministry, on their healing ministry as they had their crusade in fact, we know that they probably traveled from Israel, perhaps from Jerusalem themselves, as they're identified as Jewish and being son of a Jewish high priest. And the high priest does his ministry at the temple in Jerusalem. So it's probably where they, they came from. They, they, they left there. They're known as exorcists. It's the only time in the Bible that exorcism is mentioned. Um, exorcists, can kind of get that exit, right? Taking demons out is the idea of these these Jewish exorcists. By the way, Jewish exorcism is alive and well today. You search for that. You find everything, right? Google finds everything. Everybody, there's doing so much going on in this world. There are Jewish people trying to cast demons out. It's putting all together, these seven brothers, some type of traveling ministry, casting out demons, seeking to make people well again. And uh, good intentions for sure. Maybe facing even some success. Jesus encountered such people. You remember when he was casting out demons? The Pharisees said, it's only by Beelzebub that you're casting out demons. And uh, Jesus said, well, okay, so if I cast out demons, if demons are only cast out by Beelzebub, what about, what about your sons? Who are they cast out by? It's like, ooh, <laughs> touche is what Jesus said, basically. And Jesus encountered them, or at least heard about these Jewish exorcists or cast out demons, just putting the logic to the Pharisees. Now, just because someone's casting out demons doesn't mean they're from the dark side. Otherwise, the Jewish exorcist would have been abusable as well. And the Pharisees would have denied that for sure. But then Jesus pointed out later, he says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will that kingdom stand? And that's exactly what we see in Ephesus. We see a divided kingdom that cannot stand as these unbelieving Jewish exorcists try to cast out this demon, right? it works, but then it backfires. So it sort of works, but then it sort of, sort of didn't work. It's like, a, like a, maybe you shoot a shotgun when your, your, your butt isn't right against your shoulder. So right, it works, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to bam you back and you're going to have a bruise on your, your shoulder if you've ever done that before. I remember doing that. That's no fun. Anyway, hold it close to your shoulder whenever you shoot a shotgun. But these, these seven sons invoked the name of the Lord Jesus on these 
evil spirit, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. You need to ask, you know, why are they casting out demons in the name of Jesus? Well, I think it's probably because they saw Paul's ministry and their ministry probably failing. Like I, I, I talked to you earlier, like, like this is what magicians do. Magicians will watch a trick, figure it out, steal the trick, and then do it for themselves because it will get the crowds. And so like these people, if they're, whatever they were doing wasn't working, so they said, maybe the name of Jesus will work. Let's, let's try the name of Jesus. They'd witnessed the power of the name of Jesus. Now, we don't know how. They, they saw the name of Jesus in effect, but, fact, but in the book of Acts, we seen that. You remember when Peter encountered the, the lame beggar in Jerusalem? Here was the man who's sitting there and begging, looking for alms. He says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. See, it's in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. And, and he rose up, began walking and leaping and, and praising God. Acts chapter 3, verse 8. And then when Peter was questioned about this lame man, he stood up and he said, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus alone in which we are saved. It's the power of the name of Jesus, saving power to save us from our sins. If we just but call upon him, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. There's the name of the Lord, the power, the saving power of Jesus. But not only saving power, Jesus, the name of Jesus also has healing power. The lame beggar just risen from the dead, began walking and leaping and praising God. And these Jewish exorcists thought to invoke the power of this name of Jesus. says at the end of verse 13 here, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And, and the fact they had to say by Jesus whom Paul proclaims, I, I sense they didn't know Jesus very well. Like, um, this Jesus that's working for Paul. The one that's working for Paul. You know, that's the one that, so they didn't even really know. These were unbelieving Jewish people. And that's the point. They didn't know much because they were of the evil one. And, um, it didn't go so well. Verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And I love this. The demons know the name of Jesus. You remember when Jesus first came on the scene? He is uh, in a synagogue in Capernaum. You can read about it in Acts chapter 1. He, he shows up and he's teaching the Scriptures. And then he's interrupted right in the middle of his service by a, a man with an unclean spirit. He said, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus knew that wasn't the time for him to be known everybody. And so he rebuked the demon, cast him out, said, Be quiet. Be silent. Come out of him. They knew Jesus. And apparently news traveled throughout the demonic world that the demons knew the name of Jesus. But the evil spirit was only somewhat familiar with Paul. He says, I recognize Paul. Like, maybe I've, I've heard of him or I know of him, right? And apparently Paul's fame was not as great as the fame of Jesus. Amen, right? That's a good thing, right? That Jesus outdid him. But then comes the question, right? Who are you? Like, I've heard of Paul. He's good stuff. I've heard of Jesus, well, if you're from the demon side, it's bad stuff, but from, right, we learned of Paul, heard of Jesus, but who are you? Like, you guys are nobodies. Like, you don't even come up on my radar screen. You have like three followers to your website, whatever. You got nothing. I don't, I don't even know who you are. Nevertheless, the evil spirit obeyed these exorcists, came out of this man, and, and it didn't fare so well with the sons of Sceva. Take, take in verse 16, okay? 
And the man in whom was an evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Okay, teenagers, you got to catch this scene in your mind. Right? The evil spirit obeyed the name of Jesus, came out of this man, but was so powerful that he overpowered this man, roughed him up a little bit, took his clothes off his body. It took seven, seven men took their clothes off of their body. They didn't have any clothes on, and they ran out of that house naked and wounded. Now, I'm not going to show you a picture of what that looks like at all. Okay, but, but I picture in my mind the, the streakers, right, who get drunk and go to this big athletic contest, and they rip off their clothes, and they run on the pitch, and the security, big fat security guards are trying to run after them, and then there's some picture, some guy just getting, bam, just nailed, you know? It's all cell phone footage, they won't show it on the, on the, uh, the, the telecast, but the people in the stands are getting this, you got way off there, you're just wearing nothing but sneakers, and he's streaking around, and I, and I, that's, that's what I picture here. These, these guys just running from this house for a place of safety with bruises and cuts because they were mangled by this one spirit. One took on seven. It's the result of a kingdom being divided against itself. And so as a result, verse 17, the name of Jesus was extolled, like my, my second point. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and I take that both unbelieving and believing and to see what what took place when these Jewish exorcists, right, these these um, people who come in with all this power, hey, we're exorcists, hey, why don't you come and drink from our elixir and we're going to show you what this is about. And they do it and then they get humbled and they, they leave and they get beaten up. Fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled because the power of the name of Jesus. You know, the Jewish people didn't even know Jesus Seeking to use Jesus for their own ends and everything backfired. But I think this picture, though, here of people using the name of Jesus to get what they want is so prevalent in our society. It is the gospel of, of our generation. I've heard it said recently that the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is like passe. That's like last generation. So, I mean, you think about millennials today. What do millennials value? Right? Millennials. Do I have some millennial kids here? Millennial kids value not stuff, but experience. They want the experience. They'll spend money for their experience, for their trips, for this. And, and there's, there's something good about that. I, I appreciate that. But the previous generation who went through the Depression values stuff. But this generation values experience as well. And I've heard it today that the, the gospel of health, wealth, prosperity of a previous generation has been replaced with a gospel of self-fulfillment in this generation. In other words, right, it's millennials prioritize experience over stuff, millennials today, their salvation is, is self-actualization and experience and using Jesus for their own means. And that's how the gospel comes today, right? You want to experience your full potential? Jesus helps you with that. You want to be a better you? Jesus helps you with that. You want to kick your bad habits and be productive? Well, Jesus helps you with that. And if I can say it right, I can say it like some pastor down in Texas says. You know, you want to be successful in life. You want to have your best life now. Well, Jesus will help you do that. It's the gospel of self-fulfillment. It's what these sons were doing. They're saying, i got to cast these demons out. I'm just going to use Jesus to help me do my thing so that I can get from them the cost what they want. And so many people here want what they want. They want to be better, and so they use Jesus so as to be better in this life. That's not the gospel. 
The gospel's not reading your Bible and come to church because Jesus is going to make you so much better and help you be prosperous. The gospel is this, that we are desperate and we're on our way to hell and on our way to perdition and we need Jesus to come and just help us, forgive us so that we can even stand before God. Now, certainly there are, there are blessings that, that come out of that. We, we will be transformed. We will be changed. That's where this gospel self-fulfillment is sort of partially true a little bit because when God changes us, then we're filled with the fruit of the Spirit and we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're, we're no longer anxious to the things that make us anxious and we can walk boldly into situations trusting the Lord with all things. And He's going to give us a contentment in life. He's going to help us with self-control. Going to help us be patient with others. And that's going to, that's going to give things. But that's also the result. It's not the aim. It's not the goal. The gospel transforms us, but that isn't the gospel. The gospel's for us to stand before God so He's not angry with us, but He smiles upon us as forgiven in Jesus Christ. You know, I was talking with someone this week who hated the idea of hell. And she said, you know what, I don't, I don't believe because I just don't like hell. It's totally unfair. Like, life is so difficult in this day and age. It's just hard. And why? If life's hard, why? it doesn't make sense that, that God then would condemn us to just something that's much more difficult. And, and, I, and I said to this woman, I said, well, it might seem that way to you, but do you realize to escape that hard, difficult life for eternity in hell, all you need to do is just say, God, this world is hard. I help. Help me. I give up. Uncle. And you escape. But so many people don't even want that. They prefer their own sins and their own lusts. Just read Revelation chapter 16. When God's wrath and judgment being poured out, they gnawed their tongues because of pain, but they did not repent so as to give Him glory, but continued to, to speak against Him. So many people refuse this simple gospel. They want Jesus for their own means. Let the name of Jesus be extolled. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So let's bow to him gladly. Okay, finally, we'll go quickly here, exposing their sinful practices. We've seen these extraordinary miracles, and then through the sons of Sceva who are trying to do some spiritual things, the name of Jesus is extolled, and now we see people repent, turn from their sins, and trust in the Lord. Acts chapter 19, verse 18, and many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So in other words, these are people who believed in Jesus. Now, they, they hadn't before, but through what they saw and through what they experienced, now it is that they, they believe and trust in Jesus. And here's what they were doing. They're believing and they're seeing their sin. They're seeing their own practices. So they're confessing them and divulging them. They were letting them out, letting them be seen. And in that day, verse 19 it, it acted itself out. These magicians, these exorcists, right? These spiritually minded magic sort of folks, or maybe common folks who had bought the books that these people had written down and they had in their homes. And the number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together, scrolls probably, certainly because books weren't invented until later. It was all scrolls at that time. They brought their scrolls together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to came to 50,000 peoples. Now this is repentance. Right? When believers come, openly confess their sins, divulging their practices, telling of their former ways, their evil ways before, 
and then sacrificing over just a book. Because for them, the issue was their magics and their instructions and their spells and all these sorts of things. They said, we're turning from that. We're done with all this stuff. But we're trusting now in Jesus. You know, I think about the college revivals that came in 1995. I know, you saw that come through Wheaton, 1995. I saw it come to um, Northern Illinois University where I was. Um, gave my master's degree at the time. And, and it basically put a microphone up there and just said, Let's just, let's just seek the Lord and confess our sin. And lines and lines of people confessing sin. And at some college campuses, they then had, um, had big garbage bins. Where in 1995, this is pre-internet, right? People would drop in their pornographic materials in these bins. Even Christian colleges, right? Yep. And um, giving those away. Are there things you need to confess today? Do you need to throw your phone away maybe? Are there books on your shelves? So I, I thought about doing this, but I thought maybe I'm wiser. I talked to Vaughn about it. She's kind of like, eh, I don't know. So I remember one time like being unwise about a water bottle rocket that some of you remember. But I was thinking about um, having a big bonfire after church and just encouraging you. Why don't you bring a book that's bad and we'll just burn this up. And that's kind of like an object lesson to remember uh, what that was. But I thought maybe maybe they, I don't know, the city would get after us or we'd burn a hole. I don't know. But anyway, just what is there in your life to take and destroy? It's tapes or CDs or books or photographs or stuff that's just getting in that you just don't need that in your life. It's Repentance. Exposing sinful practices. And these people, right, they believed. And this is the fruit of belief, is, is confession. You just say, this is where I don't want to be. This is where I was, and I need to purge that. I need to just say, that is wrong and bad. And it speaks here about how much money this was. 50,000 pieces of silver. You know how much that was in our dollars? It's a lot. Five million, whatever. You say five million, that'd be a lot, right? Whatever. It's a lot. Like they had a lot of value. They had a lot of money invested in these magical arts and they willingly gave them up. No thoughts to, oh, well, that's so much money. I bought it for so much. We can sell it on eBay and get some money back. Well, if you don't need it, they don't need it. So burn it, destroy it. And that's really what they did in in those days. They would, would burn out these bonfires and um, back before the internet, that's what happened in the days of Martin Luther, right? The the Catholics had a big bonfire burning all of his books, trying to destroy them. Um, it doesn't really work. But at least it's a symbolic gesture and just say, I've got to get this out of my house. Are there things you need to get out of your house? Well, set them on fire. Have enough of you say, we can have a fire next week, whatever, next time we do that. But the result is this, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It was God's word that increased. This is one of those summary statements. I've talked to you about that before. Those summary statements in the, in the book of Acts where Luke just kind of steps back and he just says, you know, look at the, the word was, was going forth. And, and notice what it was. It was not the techniques. It was not the ways of magicians. It was just the word of the Lord. It was truth that was going forth and it was prevailing mightily in the lives of people. Not, not techniques so as to get away from it. In fact, even I, I cause you to step back here a little bit. How much did Paul 
actively engage here in spiritual warfare like those who are experts in spiritual warfare today, what are they going to do? Bring everybody up, right? Pray over somebody, speak in tongues, say something, and well, you know, just all this magic. So you got to come to me in order to do that. And how much was Paul? Paul wasn't around, right? Even these people were trying to do it on their own. They're messing up. And I think Paul was just there in the synagogue in the hall of Tyrannus, preaching the gospel, teaching forth. The word of the God was going forth and spiritual warfare is being accomplished as people, Ephesians chapter 6, put on the breastplate of righteousness, right? Put on the belt of truth. Put on their shoes the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Took up the shield of faith. Put on the helmet of salvation. Took up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And praying always with all prayer and supplication. Making supplication for all the saints. That's how you fight spiritual warfare. That's almost seemingly how Paul fought the spiritual warfare. Not with, all the, not with all, everything else. It's a, a righteous, trusting life on the basics of faith and trust and salvation and praying all around the Word of God. That's how you fight spiritual battles. Even here in this extraordinary way, it's interesting how much lack of technique there is here other than the fact that God was doing these miracles. These exorcists, try as they might, they just failed. Sort of. I mean, the demon went out, but they, they were crushed. It's not them. It's, it's the name of Jesus that it's powerful. And the word just, just went forth, especially as it demonstrated himself in, in repentance and submission to the Lord. And the name of Christ was extolled. The word of the Lord increased and prevailed might. May, may that happen among us, right? What, what, a, what a great thing. If people outside our church saw us as people who repented, turned from our sins, trusted in the Lord Jesus, that the word of God would go forth, increase and prevail mightily. So that is my prayer. Let's, let's pray before the Lord. Oh, Father, I pray, God, for your word to increase and prevail mightily. Lord, I would pray for um, just even these booklets that we're just putting out here this week, that that's the word of the Lord, right? It's taken and reading, taken and read. May that increase and prevail mightily. May those of us involved in just reading the scriptures and speaking about it with one another, may the word of God increase and prevail mightily. Father, may other Christian resources that we listen to or the, the podcasts we have, may it come into our hearts and our minds and cause us to repent and turn from our sinful ways that the word of the Lord would prevail mightily. God, it's your work. It's your word. It's you who do the miracles. It's you who have the power. It is the name of Jesus which every knee will bow and every tongue confess. It's to him that we cry out. We believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. We long, O oh Lord, that you would do a work in Rockford, Loves Park, McChesney Park, Beloit, just around this area. God, do your work. May your word prevail mightily. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.